Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you so much for stopping by again today. Uh, my apologies for being a little bit late this week. Uh, sometimes when you work in an industry, when the prime time is now, it gets to run a little bit behind. But uh, yeah, here we are. Now, we've been over an excellent safety record uh, presented by the Piedmont Airlines in an earlier episode called Piedmont Airlines Flight 349. Now, the fact that Piedmont had what they claimed to be an accident-free record has been a topic of debate for many years at that time. The debate stems from an incident that happened back in June 10, 1956, that left many people wondering just what in the world actually happened. Not that... Flight 349 didn't do nearly the same thing, but Flight 5 from Charlotte, North Carolina, would really leave people scratching their heads. So come on in, have yourself sit down, and let me tell you about what happened on that day back in 1956. On the evening of June 10th, 1956, Mr. Luther Haynes was going about his daily business as a caretaker of the local Zion Baptist Church and Cemetery in Cleveland County, North Carolina. The church is located just a little northwest of the town of Shelby, and y'all know where that's at. The Zion Baptist Church was actually started back in 1816 and claims to be the oldest church in Cleveland County. It's not really clear why Mr. Haynes just happened to be looking at the sky when he was, but as a matter of fact, he said that he was coming back from a break that he took to walk to the store when he heard a whistling sound that caused him to look up. For whatever the reason was, when he looked up, he saw a man coming down from the sky. Now, I don't know about you, but me, I'd be thinking that my eyes are probably playing tricks on me just before I'm <laughs> thinking, uh, and I'm not really trying to be funny here, just illustrating how my old mind works, I'd be recalling that old disco song, It's Raining Man. But Mr. Haynes watched as the man continued to fall and disappear behind the church. He then heard a horrible-sounding thud back there. Still not believing what he just saw, he hurried over there and 
he saw the man land or where he saw the man land and sure enough there he laid right in the cemetery there was a four inch deep hole in the ground where he'd hit and the ground had been hard because it was dry and he could see where he skidded along the ground about 25 feet after hitting it well after recovering from the shock Mr. Haynes ran into the street and he flagged down Mr. Max Davis who was on his way home from work as an insurance salesman when he was flagged down. Mr. Davis would later say that Mr. Haynes said that he actually saw the guy falling through the air and didn't know what to think but just kept watching until the guy hit the ground pretty much. Of course they called the sheriff who showed up and surveyed the scene. It was said that the man who fell looked as if every bone in his body had been just broken. His shoes were knocked off, and Mr. Haynes' estimate of him skidding about 25 feet wasn't far off. They actually measured it, and it was 27 feet. So, by this time, folks were all wondering the same thing. Who was in? Where on earth did he come from? They did find his wallet and what was left of his pocket. It uh, identified him as Orrin Asa Pruitt. Many of the good folks there were aware that meat had fallen from the sky in Kentucky years earlier, and so had fish, but a man? Well, there had to be some kind of explanation. And there was. Just 35 minutes before Mr. Haynes experienced his horror, at 5.40 p.m. on June 10, 1956, newlyweds Orrin Pruitt and his wife of 22 hours, the former Blandine Ted Smith, had boarded a Piedmont DC-3 Tidewater pacemaker in Charlotte to go visit Blandine's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Fred Smith in Asheville. After marrying in the small town of York, South Carolina, they originally were going to take a bus to Asheville, but they missed it, so they booked a five o'clock flight to Charlotte Airport, which, by golly, they also missed. You know how these newlyweds are. They then managed to snag the last two seats on the 540 flight, which was headed to Louisville, Kentucky, with a stop in Asheville. Orrin had first met Blandine while working as a chef at a hotel where, he was, where she was a hostess. They dated for almost seven years before finally deciding to tie the knot and sign the papers and make it all legal. By the time they did that, Orrin had left the hotel and chef worked behind and was working in Charlotte as a surveyor's assistant definitely a step up in my book because as much as I like cooking doing it on the level that Orrin was was well, that's pretty darn hard hard work don't you think at 5:43, with a full load of 24 passengers flight 5 lifted off of Charlotte runway and became airborne running about six minutes late settling in at around 6,000 feet they now they did this you know because of the unpressurized cabin which was pretty much typical of that day the seatbelt sign had been left on since takeoff because of anticipated turbulence. Twenty minutes into the flight, Orrin and Blandine chatted about the wedding and of his apprehensions about meeting her parents. After noticing and telling his bride that she looked a little peaked, she asked him to go get her a cup of water from the restroom. Despite the seatbelt light still being on, Orrin got up and walked to the restroom near the rear of the plane. About one minute later, at 6.07, while the purser was on the flight deck obtaining some information for a passenger, and you can note here a pa purser is another word for a chief flight attendant at the time. They called them pursers. That's when suddenly the aircraft yawed to the left, slowed 20 knots, and the cockpit door warning light came on. First Officer H.A. Schultz and 
purser Bert Barnes immediately went to the rear of the cabin to where they found an unbelievable sight of absolute horror. A panicked woman in the restroom was stuck halfway in the door that was halfway open, and she was pinned there by the hellish vortex of air from the gaping open cabin door. A nearby passenger, jo Joseph Forrest, yelled at Mr. Schultz and Mr. Barnes and he, that he thought that a passenger had opened the cabin door, and it looked like the poor man managed to hang on the door frame for a couple of seconds before he lost his grip and the wind just ripped him loose. Unable to close the door due to the tremendous outside pressure, Mr. Schultz and Mr. Barnes, along with a few passengers, manhandled the woman through the tornado uh, back from her bathroom to her seat. And uh, then they told everybody to stay seat belted in. Pilot Baxter Slaughter had initially thought it to be an engine trouble until a light came on in the cockpit settling that the passenger door was open. He first thought that it can't be right, the light must be broken. That's when he sent Purser Barnes and co-pilot Schultz to see just what the heck was going on. Back in her seat, Blandina noticed that a sudden no noisy rush of air as the plane rocked slightly back and forth. As the two men hurried to the front of the plane to report back to the captain, Blandine stopped him and asked, where's my husband? It then dawned on him that her bridegroom was the one that the passenger had seen leave the plane the hard way. Mr. Barnes sat down in the seat next to her. He couldn't bring himself to tell her anything, but she soon knew what was going on. So she just slumped over in her seat, devastated in shock. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now up ahead in the Asheville-Henderson Airport, Fred Smith anxiously awaited the arrival of his daughter and her new husband. Fred was hoping that the marriage to Orrin would be good for her since her previous relationship and back in 1946 to a Nashville man named Bob Aiken had ended the hard way, also when he was killed in a car accident just days before their wedding. At this point in the research, I was starting to wonder if Blandine had maybe took a trip up the side of Bentley Holler to see Miss Oriander, and if she hadn't been there and had a rut put on, well, she sure needed to go have one took off. The restroom door was located opposite of the passenger door, so it was immediately thought that Mr. Pruitt simply opened the wrong door. Never really explained, though, how he could make such a dumb-headed mistake, given that passenger doors were on airplanes and flights were, even though the DC-3 was a propeller-driven plane and not a jet, required a considerable amount of effort to open against the pressure of the flight, folks. The hinges on the passenger door of the Tidewater pacemaker are on the side of the door that is toward the front of the plane. That means that to open the door in mid-flight at a cruising speed of about 210 miles an hour, that should be a heck of a wrestling match for anybody to pull off. But apparent, apparently, that is, uh, Owen Pruitt had pulled it off and stepped right out into eternity. Probably more like got sucked out the door if you ask me. But the DC-3 circled the area to get a bearing on the location of the incident and continued on to its destination in Nashville with its door dangling on the side. The possibility that Mr. Pruitt, who had two children from a previous marriage, was drinking was raised when flight attendant said that he had smelled alcohol on his breath. His new bride, Blandine, was adamant that he hadn't drank a drop. 
Orrin seemed a little unsteady as he walked down the plane's aisle as he had some time before boarding the plane as well. And maybe unknown to his wife, had had a few drinks to steady his nerves, maybe to calm him a little bit before he would go meet her parents. This was confirmed later by Purser Barnes, who smelled alcohol on Orrin's breath when he offered him both a stick of gum prior to takeoff. As the plane landed and taxied to the terminal, Fred and several others were surprised to see the cabin door already open. Then, he saw his daughter get off by herself, steadied by the purser. After meeting and listening to her story and her frantic explanation of what happened, he took Blandine to their house where he, she stayed and was treated for shock by the family doctor. Yes, doctors made house calls in the Appalachians, which was a practice that continued well into the 1970s. I thought Orrin was in the men's room still, she told the reporter the next day of the moment on the plane. Nobody got up. I was afraid to look back there. I just was afraid he was gone. The crew and other passengers weren't involved in the accident. The air stair door received minor damage during the in-flight opening and subsequent flight to the normal landing at Asheville. The flight was a course canceled at Asheville and the aircraft remained there waiting a, an inspection by the bureaucrats that were on the way to straighten it all out. You know, like bureaucrats always do, they have a way of straightening it all out. Within hours, the Civilian Aeronautics Board, the State Bureau of Investigation, the North Carolina Highway Patrol, and other law enforcement agencies were crawling all over the airport and the Tidewater pacemaker. An investigation headed by Bill McGee and Zeke Sanders showed the cabin door was in perfect mechanical order. But since nobody was actually looking directly at him and saw Mr. Pruitt open it, it was unclear exactly how in the world he'd done it and how it happened. There's not a way in the world the door could have been forced open by, because of the pressure, and the door was not something that you can just bump against and open, Mr. McGee stated. He added that uh, Mr. Pruitt must have worked hard to force it open. A Cleveland County coroner's jury also failed to find exactly how Orrin Pruitt fell from a plane. Joseph Forrest, who was seated nearest to the cabin door, testified that he didn't actually see how the door was open, only that when he heard and felt the rush of wind, he looked up for a split second and saw Mr. Pruitt clinging to the door frame before he was jerked away by the wind. He said he briefly considered jumping up to help, but was afraid he would be sucked out with him. Mr. Murray and aeronautics, or Richard Murray, an aeronautical administration representative, testified that there was no CAA regulations violated and that the door was functioning perfectly when the plane landed. He did speculate that alcohol may have been a factor in Mr. Pruitt's actions, judging by Purser Barnes' testimony that he smelled it on Orrin's breath early in the flight. Blandine, however, flatly denied that her husband had been drinking and stuck to that story to the very end. Back in the churchyard just after the incident, police and a coroner had arrived, and Mr. Haynes explained to them what he'd just heard and seen, and they identified Orrin's body, then carried him to the Shelby funeral home in a bag. Folks, I've been to plane crashes, and I've seen uh, it, it, it ain't pretty from... Oh, from the information that I could find on the condition of Orrin's body, it was indeed a pretty gruesome sight. Orrin's cause of death was listed as complete destruction of the body and fall from airplane of about 6,500 feet. 
His funeral was held on June 16th, and he was buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Charlotte. Other than that, or his new wife being there, a new wife of less than a day, as a matter of fact, he had no surviving family in attendance. Apparently, his children didn't come. In the days following the accident, Luther Haynes reported that over 200 rubberneckers visited the cemetery to see the location of what he called a freak death fall. There's a plaque in the cemetery that marks the spot where Orrin Pruitt fell to the earth that day. The explanation for what exactly happened stands just as it was left back in 1956. To me, there's something about a man opening a cabin door against a 200-plus mile-an-hour wind and falling through it that just don't exactly pass the smell test. But Piedmont Airlines was still able to keep their perfect safety record, and that's where they left it. I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow, please. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the different report, please consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month and for the extra episodes of all three podcasts right here at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I'll see you then.